You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Hey, everyone. This is Krista Bontrager, and this is a live stream. So if you happen to catch me live, feel free to jump in the chat box there on YouTube or on Facebook And I will uh, be checking comments throughout this live stream. I don't know how long this is going to take me. Maybe usually like these streams usually seem to take about 20 to 30 minutes. So um, we will be here for a little while. Um, I want to do a little conversation today in follow up to the discussion that Monique and I had last night about the movie Just Mercy. And if you haven't yet. heard our review of that film, I would encourage you to check that out. And um, I'd look forward to your feedback about the movie Just Mercy. And one of the themes kind of lurking in the background of that film was the question of whether capital punishment is inhumane or unjust. And the film doesn't really take um, a strong position on this. And maybe I'm just sort of reading that into it, but uh, there's a little movie poster from the film, Just Mercy. So yeah, be sure to check out our review of that. Um, I think that the film was pretty diplomatic in how it was dealing with this, but because it was dealing with inmates on death row, the question of capital punishment was definitely lurking in the background of the film. And so I thought it would be good to maybe do a little bit of discussion about capital punishment as it pertains to the Christian worldview. Should capital punishment be advocated for by Christians, or is it incompatible with the teachings of Jesus? So I'm going to try to lay out the case here. And um, uh, again, you can join me in the chat box if you like, and write some follow-up comments as we go along. Okay, so I'm going to be laying out two views and then working through some general principles here. So view number one is that scripture mandates or at least permits capital punishment. Now, the principal argument here is that because life is sacred, those who wrongfully take another human life uh, must lose their own lives and that this is a matter of justice um, on behalf of the victims or the innocent. So the really the question here is about the state. Uh, this what does the state do? What does the government do with those who shed innocent blood? Now um, I'm going to launch a few arguments here and then we'll process them together. The proponents of view number one, which again is that scripture mandates or at least permits capital punishment. Argument number one is based on Genesis chapter nine. Now the context here is that Noah and his family have just gotten off the ark and God is giving Noah some instructions. And historically speaking, the instructions that God gives to Noah, the covenant he makes with him. Um, after the flood is actually referred to by Jewish scholars as the covenant of the Gentiles. And it is seen as a universal covenant with all of humanity, not just a Jewish covenant, like in the Abrahamic covenant or the Mosaic covenant. 
So Genesis chapter 9, we've got a few verses here to put up on the screen to read through together. Uh, God says this to Noah, and for your life blood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from every human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed for the image of God. For in the image of God, God has made mankind. And then he, um, God again repeats this command of be fruitful and increase in number, multiply and fill the earth. Now, the reason that this is important is because this is sort of the foundational passage for capital punishment. We're told in Genesis chapter one that humans are created in the image of God. And this is repeated a couple more times in the early chapters of Genesis. And right here, right after the flood, God says that if people kill one another, if they murder one another, um, that is a capital crime. We have some hints in Genesis chapter four that murder seemed to have been um, an, a difficult or a pervasive problem before the flood. And in Genesis chapter six, God describes the inclinations of human hearts as being always evil all the time. And so there does seem to be some inferences from the text that humanity had become fairly evil, that sin had really spread quickly, and um, that murder was a distinctive problem. And so it might not be a coincidence that God addresses murder directly right after the flood. Now, another thing to note is that Noah is kind of acting as a second Adam in the story. And so that's why we see some themes repeated here about the image of God and also about being fruitful and multiplying. These were, again, were commands that given to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter one. So uh, this law, again, uh, this covenant that God makes with Noah is historically called the covenant with the Gentiles. It is, has universal application for all humanity. And it reflects the great value of human life. And the reason for that value is rooted and grounded in the image of God. Now, um, I've heard some Jewish scholars say that the reason that murder is a capital crime is because you are robbing humans of their ability to work. And to work is an intrinsic part of the image of God because work the mandate to work the earth was given to Adam and Eve before the fall. So it is part of the human person to want to work. And if you kill that person, if you murder that person, um, you are robbing that person of their ability to work and also robbing their family of livelihood. Okay. So that's the first argument in favor of capital punishment. Argument number two is that the law as given to Moses on Mount Sinai ordained the execution for several offenses. In other words, there were a number of capital offenses, including murder as one of them. Now we're going to make some distinctions here between uh, murder and other types of killings. For example, uh, self-defense was not a capital crime. Um, accidental killing was not a capital crime. Only murder, which was kind of a, a forethought, an intentional killing was considered murder. But there were other, a number of other capital offenses as well. 
um, kidnapping, adultery, incest, bestiality, sodomy, um, raping an engaged virgin, witchcraft, blasphemy, sacrificing to false gods. Um, there's a number of them that you can look up in the Mosaic law. And what this does is it just restates or reconfirms um, the universal law that was given to Noah after the flood that um, this is an extension of God's eternal moral law and that God's people would be known as a people who um, reflect the moral law of God and reflect his standard of justice. Okay, argument number three in favor of capital punishment is that um, we need to acknowledge that there is no New Testament passage that expressly mandates capital punishment. Um, there are some shifts in uh, between the two treaties, and we are no longer under the Mosaic Treaty. We are under the New Covenant Treaty, but there are still laws and stipulations that are part of that New Covenant Treaty. However, we notice under the New Covenant that many of the things that were capital crimes under the Old Covenant Treaty or the Mosaic Treaty um, no longer require capital punishment because now we've gone from a government, um, a theocracy in ancient Israel to now the church age and uh, the church is not the same thing as a government. And so the church doesn't exercise capital punishment. So if someone in your congregation commits adultery, the church doesn't put that person to death. That's not a capital crime in the church. The church doesn't have that jurisdiction. But scripture in the New Testament does talk about the appropriateness of the, the government, secular government or the state to... Um, engage in its own practices and that Christians, according to Romans chapter 13, have an obligation to submit to the authority of the civil government. In fact, the apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 13, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Who, consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now, let me just pause here and, and set a little bit of historical context and remind us that the authority that Paul is, is talking about here is the Roman authority. And the Roman government was not known for virtue. It was not known for just punishments. This was a government that sometimes crucified um, hundreds of people a day. Uh, they engaged in mass levels of capital punishment. And this was a, a corrupt government. It was an unjust government. And yet Paul admonishes Christians to understand that even unjust governments, God has put in power. Nobody can be in power except those authorities that God puts in power. And we see in the Old Testament that sometimes God uses unjust governments for his purposes. He uses the Babylonians to bring judgment on the Israelites. And he used the Israelites to bring judgment on the Canaanites. 
So we have to remember that even unjust governments and, and governors and presidents and kings are on the throne only because God allows them to be. Now, let me continue reading in Romans 13 here um, for uh, picking up a verse three for rulers hold no terror for those who do right. But for those who do wrong, do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not because of the possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. So what we notice here is that Paul describes that the authority does not bear uh, the sword for no reason. This somewhat implies that, that God is okay with execution. That's what the sword would have been used for. And so in that way, Christians are called to live quiet and humble lives under the new covenant where we're told to obey the governing authorities to understand that God has put them in power and to be moral and good. And um, hopefully we will ex escape execution. But it, it, Paul doesn't seem to uh, condemn this government because they did engage in execution. So while the state may have authority, um, I would say that they not necessarily have an obligation to execute but it does seem as though God permits the state um, this sanction, this, this ability to execute. So some nuances there of changing covenants and, and what the church has jurisdiction over, what the state has jurisdiction over. So Hopefully that makes that clear. Now we're going to move to view number two, which is that scripture prohibits capital punishment. And... Uh, let's see here. Um, I'm going to give a couple of arguments for this position. And this is more of a position that's advocated by those Protestants who are more in the pacifist stream of Christianity. These are often Mennonites, um, the Amish. Um, there are a number of, of streams in within Christianity that historically have been pacifists. And so uh, I think that maybe the brethren historically were pacifists. So these, this would be a view that would be more reflective of those streams of thought. Now, argument number one for those that say that scripture prohibits capital punishment, they would say that, yes, the Old Testament law clearly calls for capital punishment. So those who believe that scripture now prohibits capital punishment largely make the argument based on the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. And that Israel was a theocracy. Um, the nation was ruled directly by the laws of God. And they would say that that puts Israel, ancient Israel in a unique position and that they had the ability to execute false teachers and, People who worship false gods, they had the, the ability to engage in capital punishment. Uh, but that was 
rested squarely on Israel's very unique relationship with God. When Israel ceased to be a nation, that treaty was nullified. And I think that that raises a very thoughtful point. And, and we do need to be somewhat nuanced about that. Now, I think that that that's an, that's a thoughtful point for them to raise. So um, I have a couple of issues with that point, but I just want to lay out their position right now. Okay, so argument number two uh, for the um, view that scripture prohibits capital punishment is that Christ's teaching emphasizes forgiveness and a willingness to suffer evil rather than resist it by force. By force. Um, now, sometimes in this position, they, they won't really take a, a, a position about what the state's position is. Um, they're just simply trying to, to demonstrate the case for how Christians should respond. And that because Christ emphasizes forgiveness um, and not retaliating and not repaying evil for evil, they, they make that case that capital punishment actually is wrong and goes against the values of the kingdom of God. Um, and I think that this, again, is a very thoughtful point that Christians ought to have a distinctly uh, Christian response that when evil happens and we have to wrestle through that of what does Jesus mean when he says to turn the other cheek? And what does he mean when he tells me to pray for my enemies and love those who persecute me? These are, these aren't just pretty cliches. Like the, this position says, you know, we have to really wrestle through those teachings of Jesus and, and figure out how to live them out in a meaningful way. I think that, um, Part of this argument, and is somewhat of a compelling argument against capital punishment, is that there are many examples in Scripture of men who um, engaged in murder, but they were not put to death. Um, Cain kills his brother Abel in Genesis chapter 4, but yet God allows him to resettle in a, a faraway city. Moses kills a man in, in a moment of of anger, but God doesn't put him to death. He goes out into the wilderness. God works with him for 40 years. And then he comes back and becomes the leader of God's people. King David um, engaged in some manipulative behaviors to get a man killed um, the, uh, whose wife David had had uh, committed adultery with. Jesus himself did not condemn the woman found in adultery in John chapter eight. Um, rather, this woman is paraded out before him by the religious leaders. And yet in John chapter eight, he, he tells them, you know, whoever is without sin, let them cast the first stone. He, he doesn't recommend that this woman must die. Rather, he deals with her gently and, calls her to repentance. So I think that those reasons say that God, although capital punishment is part of God's justice system, um, he's also so gracious and merciful and 
wanting to work with people. And sometimes he even turns them into leaders. And in fact, in Jewish tradition, from what I understand, um, these values were reflected that there was a great reluctance on the part of, of Jews to impose the death penalty. Yes, it was there. And yes, it was part of God's law. And yes, it was part of God's justice system. But they wanted to be very slow with that because they wanted to um, work with people and um, allow them to come to repentance. So I think this is a, these are very thoughtful points that are, are brought up by the position that the scripture actually does not allow for capital punishment. Um, this focus on personal forgiveness and redemption of the individual. Now, I want to make some points here about the conditions of God's justice system, because those who believe that Scripture mandates or at least permits capital punishment on the part of the state must consider an additional question, and that is, what are the conditions that Scripture requires before the state may exercise capital punishment? The Old Testament law did not simply address the, the whether capital punishment was allowed. It also spoke of how it was to be done, how these sentences were to be arrived at, and that these provisions needed to be taken, uh, carried out very literally and very faithfully in order to meet the biblical standards for dr- justice. And here's just a few of these um these laws. I'm going to check the comments real quick. There's no comments yet. All right, great. Okay, cool. Um, go back to my script. Okay. The first sort of condition um, that's part of capital punishment is to look at the intent. Um, Numbers chapter 35 verses 22 to 24 make some very important distinctions of defining what murder is. Um, capital punishment could not be imposed when the offender did not act intentionally, when, when there was an accidental death or when there was self-defense. These were not the same thing as murder. So um, sometimes in the Ten Commandments, there, the, the commandment about um, it, it says, is translated as do not kill. But that's actually not a very good translation. It should be do not murder. It's a different word in Hebrew. And the Hebrew law, as you can see in, in these verses in Numbers 35, differentiates between some kinds of killing. Self-defense is not a capital punishment. Accidental death is not a capital punishment. It takes intentionality. The second kind of um, requirement in God's justice system is proportionality with the offense um, with the offense and the punishment that there there's we, we shouldn't over punish people based on their offense. Exodus 21 is the famous verse of eye for an eye tooth for a tooth. But what this, the principle of God's moral law that it's laying down here is that punishments should fit the crime. We shouldn't over punish. We shouldn't, it's not I, someone takes an eye and then you take two of their eyes or two of their teeth or two, both of their feet there. It's, it's, it's 
the punishment must fit the crime. It, it needs to not overpunish the person. And I think this is a very provocative point because I, I think that one of the issues raised in the film Just Mercy is that it calls into question um, some of our sentencing practices in our country. And I think it's a fair question for Christians to be engaging with about whether or not some of our sentencing practices are actually over punishing people. Um, it, is there a better system in God's law? Most of the crimes or many of the crimes are dealt with through restitution. They're dealt with through paying back the person who was wrong, sometimes times two or times four or whatever, but it's, it's more of a restitution model. Our criminal justice system is more about like you do this and then you get three to five years. We take years off their life as the sentence. And so it's, it's really hard to know how do we quantify how much time um, is proportional to this crime. And then you get into questions about three strikes laws and what, what were the three strikes and are, is it, is it really just and proportional according to God's law to force someone to give their whole life um, for certain crimes? And, and I think that those are all conversations that we need to be having as Christians. Punishment needs to fit the crime. Um, so those are some thoughts related to that. My third point about the, the kind of the conditions of God's justice system is that in order for someone to be executed, uh, there has to be a rigorous standard of proof. There needs to be two or three witnesses. And we see this in a couple of Old Testament passages, Deuteronomy 17, and also in Numbers chapter 35, are just two places. But this is one of the God's standards of requirement of, God's standards of justice is actually repeated in the new covenant a number of times. And so this is, God is very concerned that if, if somebody is going to be kind of called out and punished, there has to be the establishing of the truth of the matter with two or three witnesses there. We have to have a rock solid case that um, this person is actually guilty, guilty, that there is certainty of guilt. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, there was a requirement um, that the witnesses who came forward and were part of the trial were actually the first ones to throw the stones. They were the first ones who were supposed to um, be responsible for that, that person's punishment and that the witnesses themselves would be responsible for that person's death. And so it was kind of a a motivating factor that is a consequence of their testimony, that it was encouraging their truthfulness because the blood of that person would be on them. And we see this played out again in John eight, as we mentioned earlier, the incident with the woman caught in adultery um, that Jesus was saying, okay, if you're going to be one of the, the witnesses, you know, you come forward. And so and now in this day and age, how this kind of cashes out in our justice system is that we have, we live in the day and age of DNA evidence, um, cyber investigations, 
uh, cybersecurity, mobile devices. A lot of cases now will collect data on our mobile devices because it tells law enforcement where we've gone, what we've looked at, who we've texted, who we've called. All of that data is part of our mobile device. What, uh, where we went and what towers were pinged while we were driving. And all of this is a form of, of a witness. So we need to take reasonable steps, I think, to make sure that the truly guilty are punished. When, when we're dealing with rates of execution where some statistics are telling us that one in nine of people that are on death row are getting exonerated because as their evidence and the witnesses are reexamined, the case starts falling apart or it starts becoming evidence that um, evidence starts coming forward that testimonies were falsified. Evidence was falsified. That's a high number. And part of God's justice system is that we have to have certainty of guilt. And if we don't have certainty of guilt, we are encroaching in an area where we are engaging in unjust behavior that is not consistent with the heart of God. So, and again, this is a critical theme that was brought up in the film, Just Mercy. And I think that that's, it's important for us to reflect on that. Uh, The next part or kind of value of God's justice system is due process. Um, There are several provisions in the Mosaic law that ensured that executions took place only after there were appropriate judicial procedures. Um, The issue was not simply whether the accused was guilty, but whether they had had a fair chance to prove their innocence. And again, I would refer you to Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 17 for that. Finally, I think that it's worth noting that there are some scriptures that go back to a previous point I made earlier that God seems very reluctant to execute. Yes, um, executing someone is consistent in God's justice system because they have robbed another human of the image of God. They've robbed them of their ability to work. But yet God is so merciful and he's slow sometimes to execute his judgment because he wants all to come to repentance. And in fact, in Ezekiel 33, uh, God says this, he laments, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live, turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? God's heart is that he wants people to repent. He wants the guilty to repent and he wants, um, he will delay justice and justice delayed is not justice denied. We all know that Jesus is coming again and he will put the world to right. Um, But the more that he delays, it's part of his mercy that he is giving more time for more people to come to repentance. So in that sense, uh, I think execution should be a last resort. It should be something that only happens after things are, are very, that the, the case is firmly established that the witnesses have been reliable, that there was due process. All of these things are part of God's justice system and we as Christians have to wrestle through some things about how there are, are 
some things in our justice system and some practices that we have that may not match the law of God. So what are we to make of all of this? What, what conclusions can we begin to draw? Well, in my view, I would say that God's standard of justice allows for the state to engage in execution for certain crimes. Um, despite the fact that Jesus himself refrains from using violence, at no point does he say that the state doesn't have authority to exact capital punishment. So I think that that is something that the state is permitted to do in God's economy. However, as Christians, we must also remember that we are sinners and we are just as guilty as the vilest murderer. And we want to work toward forgiveness and release. And that's hard. When somebody wrongs us, we want justice. We want that person to be punished. And yet, in, if we're going to follow Jesus as our rabbi and we're going to follow his teachings, we have to think deeply and reflect deeply about forgiveness because Jesus forgave us um, in our sins and we want to emulate that. We don't want to be like the parable of the, the servant who was forgiven a huge debt by the king. And then he goes out and beats up his friend because his friend owes him $2 uh, that we don't want to do that. We want to consider um, forgiveness. And I'm reminded of a story. I worked on a film years and years ago. Um, it was a very small student film about the life story of Tex Watson, who was involved in the Manson murders and he was actually the one who did a lot of the killing. And he um, was sentenced to prison. I think he's sentenced here in California. And he's still alive and he's in prison serving out his sentence. And um, one of the daughters of his victims, uh, one of his, uh, the LaBianca, Rosemary LaBianca, um, there's, a, there's a great story of, Tex Watson, he comes to faith in Christ in prison. And then Rosemary LaBianca comes to meet with him. And she and her parents were both killed by Tex Watson in the Manson murders. And she was also a Christian. And it's a wonderful story of forgiveness and release. And that even though he did this vile thing that robbed her of her parents, um, she was willing to reach out to him, go meet with him in prison and forgive him. I think that that is a wonderful example of what we as Christians need to do. But that's an individual thing. That's, that's separate from the state. The state, I'm making the case, has, is permitted in God's economy to engage in capital punishment. But what is our obligation as individual Christians? That is another matter entirely. The second conclusion I want to, or the third conclusion I want to talk about is that I do think Christians ought to take a stand against unjust prosecutions that lead to false imprisonment. I think that a reasonable case could be made that capital punishment is biased or disproportionately affects the poor um, because the poor often cannot 
afford proper representation and they as a result are have higher incarceration rates um i think that it's important for christians to be in a voice for the oppressed for people who are unjustly prosecuted or have bad cases where evidence is falsified or not looked at or potential witnesses aren't interviewed i think that christians should be very careful to speak out on their behalf. Fourthly, I think it's worth thinking about um, God's justice system and his, his standards of justice and how we practice incarceration in our country. I don't claim to have all those answers, but I do think that it's a worthy conversation. We certainly don't want to engage in conversations, even privately among Christians, where we even vilify certain criminals. We want to always remember that we are sinners too. And we want to pray for people, even for murderers. Um, We want to think about them the way that God thinks about them. And so those are some of my thoughts about capital punishment. I'm going to check the comments one more time here and just see. Nope. Everything's clear. Okay. So I do want to thank you for watching and I hope that you found this discussion helpful and I do look forward to your feedback. Thank you so much.